Hey, it's Karen here. And before we begin, I want to take a moment to tell you about something special. After my own cancer diagnosis, I realized the importance of having a helpful and simple resource. That's why I wrote Happiness Through Hardship, a guide and journal for cancer patients, their caregivers, and friends. Like a good friend, this book will provide practical tips and resources, as well as a few stories providing hope. If you or someone you know has been diagnosed, I encourage you to send them a copy of my book. Half the proceeds also go to the Cancer Couch Foundation, where 100% of the donations are matched and fund metastatic breast cancer research. Please go to prettywellness.com forward slash book to learn more or buy directly on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Target.com. And here we are. I want to welcome you to Happiness Through Hardship, the podcast. I'm Karen Sullivan, the founder of Pretty Wellness, a two-time breast cancer survivor thriving with stage four disease, and author of the book that shares the same name as this podcast, Happiness Through Hardship. I'm also a girl who wishes on pennies. I try to see the good in everything, even when life is not so great, but sometimes it takes a little more. And this podcast will provide you with what worked well for me, success stories of people that have been through hard times and simple suggestions that brought hope, resources, and connections. Now, if you like these episodes, please do me a favor, rate, review, and subscribe. Your efforts truly will help this podcast get noticed and help us inspire more people. And now for this episode, I am honored to introduce you to Linda Remillard. After experiencing a traumatic birth with her first son that led to developmental disabilities, Linda has devoted her life to advocating, caring for, and creating a full life for him. On today's episode, she shares this story and how she's embraced strength and hope throughout. She is kind, loving, and full of inspiration. So please grab your favorite drink, get cozy, and let's get started. I am thrilled to introduce you to our guest today, Linda Remillard, a nurse, cancer survivor, and incredible mother. Linda has faced life challenges head-on with grace, resiliency, and determination. She is the mother to three children, the oldest of whom has developmental disabilities and a severe seizure disorder. At the age of 26, after experiencing a traumatic birth with her son, Brett, Linda has devoted her life to advocating, caring for, and creating a beautiful and full life for her son and two daughters. She has had a vast career as a nurse, and this experience in combination with her one-in-a-million heart has allowed her to care for so many people in her life in a variety of ways. She is here today to share her story as one mom who has faced the true meaning of strength and hope. Thank you so much, Linda, for being here with us today. Thank you, Karen. I'm very excited to be here. Well, and should we tell the listeners? I think I'm going to go take a moment and explain. Not only are you this amazing mom, and you're going to share your and Brett's story with that, but your youngest daughter was my intern who found me on Pretty Wellness and so connected to inspiration and healthy living, and she's dabbling in that herself as a college student. 
that she reached out. She wanted to intern here. And she wrote the most beautiful long intro, some of which we use today. And so not only am I so excited for you to be telling us the story, I am also just thrilled that I get to be on the phone with Paige's mom. <laughs> right? Very exciting. It's very exciting. And so it's a little bit of behind the scenes there for everybody listening. But I want to jump right in because I know, as we all know, we, we all have several stories in life and you have been through so much. But I want to start from the beginning of you being a mother. And that may actually have begun even before the baby is born. So can you talk talk to us a little bit about your pregnancy or the last few weeks of pregnancy with Brett and then how you moved forward? Yes, I can. Um, I was 26 years old and uh, very excited to be having my first child. I had a normal pregnancy, healthy, happy, active, you know, did all the things you're supposed to do, didn't have too much caffeine or things like all the things that you're supposed to do. Um, I was 10 days overdue, which was not unusual with your first pregnancy. And I went in for a non-stress test during the non-stress test. They found that Brett was in fetal distress. Um, and then we did an emergency C-section. Now I worked at the hospital where I had Brett, as did my husband at the time, um, Brett's father. So we knew everybody, you know, that was there and that was with us during this process. Um, So it was comforting, but also I can't really explain the feeling. There was um, a warmth to them being there, but also scary when because I could read these people and I knew when there was silence or things like that, that I knew something wasn't, it was worse than I had even possibly thought that it was. Um, So when Brett was born, he had no vital signs and he wasn't breathing. Um, Okay, wait, wait, wait. So when Brett was born, you knew something was wrong because you could read them. Yes. When he was born, he was stillborn? He was stillborn and it was silent prior to, you know, him actually being born when we were in the OR and they were prepping me and, you know, it was the usual kind of, it's going to be fine. And the yeah, almost like joking, like, okay, they would, they were telling me as they were cutting me, (laughs) okay, we're cutting through the fascia and we're doing this and I said please don't tell me that I'm actually the the patient here <laughs> right, but right. it was so that kind of atmosphere to silence and you know I knew there was something and I didn't hear the baby I didn't hear uh-huh. anything uh-huh. and when I looked over I could see the you know my doctor um he had Brett and he was suctioning him he had what they call meconium um, in his lungs, they had to suction that and they did revive Brett. Um, but he immediately started having some seizures and I was able to look at him. They held him up to me, but I wasn't really able to hold him. And he had to be, he was airlifted to Dartmouth Hitchcock medical center and I wasn't able to go. 
um, which was, you know, kind of devastating right. for sure. Um, and we, during the process of, you know, when I was pregnant, we were going to Lamaze class. We had a, another couple that was our good friends. Um, and there, the plan was that they were going to be part of our birth. They were going to video and all of this stuff uh, was what we had planned. And so one of the wife actually went with Brett's dad, Dennis, up to um, Dartmouth, and the husband stayed with me at, you know, where I was at the hospital. And I said to my doctor, I said, tomorrow I'm going up there, so figure out a way that I'm mm -hmm. getting there. <laughs> and when I woke up, the, and I didn't, I refused pain medication because I wanted to be alert. Um, I got up the next morning and I actually broke all the rules and took a shower and I dried my hair. I curled my hair and I put on pajamas and the doctor came in and he said, I've never seen anything like this. He goes, I guess you're going. So I, they, <laughs> they got in, you know, I went up in an ambulance and I was admitted to Dartmouth because I was still a patient too, having, you know, just had a C-section and we were there for two weeks and I may, I became friends with some of the nurses. I became like a support person for some of the other parents. Um, I mean, I was a nurse and I felt very comfortable in the setting. And um, so it was kind of a natural thing. And I, I was unable to breastfeed Brett because he had to be fed with an NG tube okay. through an NG tube. So I, you know, pumped milk and they were able to give him my milk, which I was thankful for. Um, and the, my favorite nurse, she had a daughter named Kelsey Lynn. And at that time I said, if I ever had a daughter, that's what I was going to name her. And I, I have a daughter, Kelsey Lynn. Oh, um, <laughs> wow. So, um, so we were at the hospital, you know, for the, for two weeks, we were discharged home and we were lived about 45 minutes from the hospital. And within five minutes of getting home, Brett had a seizure. So that's kind of how, you know, our, our life began at home. Um, I kind of dove into learning absolutely everything that I could about what was going on with Brett. And, you know, we lived in rural New Hampshire. We had to do a lot of traveling between Dartmouth and Boston Children's. Um, we had a lot of good medical care. Uh, Brett was very dependent. He, he, didn't, he couldn't walk until he was about three and a half. He scooted on his bottom. So he wore out the seat of his pants. Uh -huh. And it was hard to give hand-me-downs when <laughs> the seat of the pants were, were worn out. So I learned as much as I could. I would make copies of photocopies of everything and I would bring them to my family because I wanted them to know everything that there was to know about Brett because it was more complicated than it looked on the surface from sensory integrative things to everything. So can you tell me what did they, what did they, I guess the doctors say to you after he's born, he has a seizure. Did they know that he was going to have developmental disabilities because you said he had just had a seizure, or was that something that came within the following few weeks when you were at Dartmouth? That was some, the 
as we look, do, do you mean like, did we learn that he would have developmental disabilities in the subsequent weeks? Right. What were they, I guess, what were they telling you at the onset? At the onset, they didn't, they weren't sure. They said they couldn't say for sure how his development would be. He was a well-developed, full-size, full-term baby. Okay. And the um, I had an excessively long nuchal cord. It was wrapped around his neck four and a half times. So when he went to descend and get ready to, to be born, he, it was cutting off his oxygen, which caused brain damage. Okay. But immediately, he was too too young to be able to say. So we were frequently going to the hospital and having evaluations and they did sonograms of his brain and, and different things. And they suspected that he was going to have, you know, pretty significant developmental disabilities. Um, so that was all. And we went to Boston, we got, you know, second opinions and it was confirmed. And at the time, one of the, um, I think he was the, uh, forget what his title exactly was, but he said that Brett's biggest hardship in his life was going to be the fact that he looked normal because people were going to expect normal from him and he wasn't going to be able to give it. And that he, go ahead. No, they said that so when he was so So young. young. So young. Yep. Wow. And- Tell me about that because it does. It, it, I can see where it might, would be a blessing, but a curse as well. It is. A, it that is exactly the truth. And he, Brett, was a very engaging for somebody who had the, you know, brain damage and the issues that he had. He was extremely engaging, extremely happy, mile wide grin all the time. Um, he, he, people would. I mean, initially when he couldn't walk, it was clear that there was something wrong, but at the same time, he looked like there was nothing wrong. So people were confused as he got older. He is a, he is a very handsome guy. He um, is athletic. He's been involved in everything. And that started young people would, it would be difficult for people to understand, but once they spent a little bit of time with him, they were able to see where he was having trouble. And the biggest thing for Brett and the biggest thing that people are able to see once they spend time with him is that he has processing issues. So he has, he has a processing disorder that if, if you gave him a three-step direction at the time you said the third thing, he couldn't remember what the first thing is. Okay. So he had, he had like short-term memory issues and he still does. I mean, he's still the same person that he was then you know, he still has the same things that didn't improve necessarily. So he's had to, you know, learn how to live with a lot of this stuff. You know, he, he was always active. We had play groups. We did everything that anybody else would be doing. And I would have mothers say to me, well, how come he's not doing this? And my child started walking, you know, when they were whatever. And that kind of thing. So there's always been that level of it, it's painful, you know, when people say stuff like that. It feels in, insensitive when they don't 
understand. But at the same time, I can understand why people don't understand, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And I would I would always try to educate people. Well, and, and that's strong and powerful of you. And I hear you. If people don't know, they don't necessarily know what they're saying. But on, on the same note, you know, I got to believe that comparing kids is something that we shouldn't have done like 20, 30, 40 years ago. And we definitely shouldn't do today because, right. because everybody is different. Everybody's different. Right. Now, you had mentioned that he has a, a seizure disorder. Does that mean, I don't know a lot about it. Does it mean that mm-hmm. he that somebody always needs to be with him? And how, if so, like, how is that in raising him as a child into adulthood? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Brett, I mean, he had little seizures up until he was uh, two and a half, three years old. They were just little stares. So through the process of doing some of the testing, they decided that they wanted to try to take him off the seizure medication. They thought that he maybe had outgrown them. And he also had some ticks, like he would blink his eyes and stuff. Um, So we weaned him off. And when he was four years old, he had his first grand mal seizure. What is that? So that is when your brain is firing in from multiple focuses in your brain. So you have a full body seizure where you're shaking, you're uh, becoming continent of urine or, you know, sometimes stool, but he never was. It was black, you know, he lost his bladder control. Um, He couldn't, his body was shaking. He would be kind of have some, you know, you hear the term foaming at the mouth. That sounds terrible, but it is that they have some spit and saliva that, that is there. I had to do rescue breathing for him because it went on for an hour and a half. We lived remotely. The ambulance had difficulty finding our house. So it progressed into a much bigger situation. And so that was the start of, you know, him having some of the bigger seizures. The, The larger seizures only happen every few years, but when they happen, they're long. And he, he has, um, to go into the hospital. Regular seizures have occurred throughout his whole life. At times he would have six to 15 in a week. And what that means is that he could be, when he was little, it it didn't have as much, um, how do I wanna say? Cause he, he was always with me. And so I was always able to pick up on it. And, you know, we, I just had to wait the seizure out. And if it became something bigger, then we would have to call the ambulance. As he got older, went through different things such as hormones, um, some of the seizure activity increased. But in 2004, I think it was, we learned that there was a thing called a vagus nerve stimulator, which is an implant, like a pacemaker that they put under your skin. Okay. There's leads that wrap around the vagus nerve and it's programmed and it stimulates the vagus nerve to stimulate the brain to shut down a seizure. Wow. So it's, it's cut his seizures down significantly, but as an older person having a a seizure disorder now, it's 
like he can't just go out for a walk by himself or things like that. So he still requires the same kind of monitoring, basically, as he did, has his whole life. That somebody has to have eyes on him. So t- I mean, tell us, you know, obviously, again, it, I can go in many different directions with this. It's a, you know, it's a beautiful thing that you can be so close to your child and that he needs you in some ways. It's also very unconventional and not probably the way you saw life going. No. <laughs> right? When you realize that, I don't know at what point in your life and that it, it was going to be a different type of relationship, how did you cope? Well, I I don't know where I got the uh, strength or the resilience that just seemed to be instantly there from that first morning that I took the shower after having had a C-section and it's like I never stopped. It's never felt like a burden to have Brett and to raise him. There's many gifts that, you know, he gives just in in daily life. There's also struggles, of course. Um, But my ways of coping, I kind of had to develop things, you know, within myself. Um, I was not able to kind of just go get a massage or, or do whatever and that people do to try to, to help themselves. So I developed my own little routines, whether it was, you know, painting my nails or doing a little facial or lighting a candle. Candles have always been a big thing for me that really put me at peace. I love aromatherapy um, even a cup of coffee, (laughs) you know, having a cup of coffee and smelling that I I have a lot of significance to those types of things that have helped me to this day. I don't need a big, um, I don't need to go on a trip. I don't need to get away. I don't need, I just find it in my daily life and it's the little things. And I do daily readings. It's hard for me to sit down and read a full book. I try, but it's, I don't always have time to do that. So I've, I enjoy reading daily kind of little affirmations and things like that. Um, So, and I have friends and I have family that have always been there for me. And now as my daughters are older, they are wonderful supports. I mean, they always have been, but it's different now. We're like all adults right. together. <laughs> right. We're friends too. <laughs> well, that's really, that's really powerful. And for very different reasons and coming from a diff- very different place than you, I also believe in the little things because, and maybe for, for me, it's because I knew I can control if me drinking a kombucha Mm-hmm. makes me happy. I love the smell. I love the taste. It, it it brings good peace to me. If I'm on the way to go to a, a cancer treatment, mm-hmm. having that kombucha or my good earth tea can bring mm-hmm. me to that place too. It's having these almost like mindful moments or activities yeah. that bring me peace. And that sounds like what you're saying as well. And I think for the listeners out there, this is just very powerful advice because sometimes we don't know where our resilience comes from. We just become resilient. And, you know, you found ways to cope through small 
very small routines because you just didn't have time or energy for anything else, but it worked for you. It worked for me and, and it still does. And, you know, I think that we all, we have our gut and we can, we can trust our gut. We can trust ourselves and developing little rituals for yourself, I think can be extremely powerful. You don't need everybody to be telling you, you know, what to do or how to, you know, try this or that they're helpful, but it's, it's, if you don't have the ability to do that, it's nice that you can develop some of those things for yourself. Um, Not everybody has the means or the time to go outside of their environment to find what they're, they're looking for. My house, I have certain things a certain way because it just, it makes me feel peaceful. I hear you. I, I, I like that. And, and I think I would say the same with myself, you know, not that that has to be what works for everybody, but I do think there's when so much is going on in your life to have some sort of constant, even if it's just a room in your house or a place yes. that's, that's comfort, comforting, a happy place mm-hmm. in a corner in your home. Mm-hmm. I am, um, I, you know, I, as a kid, I used to, when I get upset about something, there was, I'd go to the corner in my bedroom and I would like sit kind of nestled up in the corner and more as an adult, what I can visualize, I'm like, oh my goodness, I think I wanted a hug. It was like the wall was hugging right? me and yeah. it kept me comfortable, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, you yeah. said you said something a moment ago, which got me thinking. And you know, now that your daughters are older and your friends and, and they're such an amazing support. I mean, now it sounds like you under you clearly understand the light lives that you all live together as a family. And Mm -hmm. earlier on, you were talking about how you educated people. But do you remember, even before that, as you were grappling with this, um, you know, we call it, we're using this term a lot in in recent years, new normal. But even back then, my guess is at some point you're trying to figure out your new normal. How did you, like, what type of support did you go to back then? Because, you know, whether someone's dealing with a situation like yours or something else that's a hardship, Mm-hmm. A lot of times you're learning on the fly. You don't know what is wrong or what's going on. How did you navigate that and what type of support? Um, I had, we, well, we lived remotely in New in, in Well, remotely today is a different term too. I mean, in a remote area. <laughs> right, right. New Hampshire, I'm not, and. You're not zooming my, in. Yes, I get I'm it. I'm not right. zooming in. right. <laughs> And my family was here in Connecticut. Um, so I developed a network of friends and I developed a network of professionals, you know, people that were working with Brett. We had a lot of early intervention um, come come to the house. So I had a rice pool in my kitchen and different things for sensory integration for Brett. So a lot of my support my family was supportive, but they were supportive from a distance. They weren't always able to be there. My sisters would come up and make food and stick it in the freezer, that type of thing. Oh, that's I, great. I, it, that was great. I, you know, I'm the oldest of six, so they're, they were still young. My parents were still, you know, my brothers and sisters were still in middle school and high school and, you know, college. So they still had a family that they were raising as well. And so... I would say that my biggest supports were the network of 
friends that I developed in New Hampshire. Um, my husband was a respiratory therapist at the hospital. And, you know, he, when he wasn't home, because sometimes he had to stay at the hospital, it was a small rural hospital. That's when I would, you know, my friends would usually come to me. We did a lot of potluck kind of things and they would have their children come and, and interact with Brett. We had a very full life. So I, I felt like that was my normal. I, I didn't feel like I had to, somehow it just innately was like, okay, this is, this is life. I didn't feel like I was trying to figure out how to, it was almost like a natural thing that I just jumped into this role. Just a mother's instinct. Well, and it's not like he was your firstborn, so you'd never so know I it didn't any have other anything way. to compare anything to. Right. You know, and then comes, though, when you do have your next child or and you Kelsey feel Lynn. that. Kelsey Lynn. <laughs> and you feel that. I mean, Brett required so much attention and sometimes I I felt, you know, like I wasn't able to do a lot of the, I was so in tune with Brett and so tuned into everything from the teeniest things to the biggest thing. And I feel like I always felt like I kind of gypped Kelsey or even myself from some of that with her and so there's that mother guilt that sometimes you you wrestle with but um you do the best you can you know with with right. everything that that you have and she's a thriving person living in Australia at the moment so well and and maybe just maybe as a mother just like you were talking about mother's instincts you know I, I also on the flip side read about about mother's guilt too Mm -hmm. So maybe, and, and I don't know, this is so not my expertise. I'm just thinking like, you know, one woman on the, on the phone, one mother to another mother, like maybe this is just a part of, of navigating parenthood is we don't have all the answers. We clearly, there's so many books out there, but just not necessarily a guidebook for our child. No. And so, I mean, your expertise and your profession, it sounds like was such a blessing because you understood more than some people Correct. might. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but on the same note, everybody, when you talk about how your support system, like your, your family did what they could, but they weren't nearby, but you created mm -hmm. a local support system there and mm -hmm. you leaned into your professional network, like professional network yes. in terms of not necessarily your colleagues, even though some of them were, but mm -hmm. those that were the doctors that helped you through. Right. And that... Yes. It, I mean, it sounds like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that that worked for you. It did work for me. Um, the other thing that we did, which I don't know why I didn't say this a little earlier, too, is that we lived on a little farm. So we had a lot of, we had lambs and chickens and cows and pigs. And Aww. that was a big thing for Brett yeah. and a big thing for us that we had that responsibility and that you know, kind of love to have all these little animals. So that was another thing that was helpful for, for both Brett and I. It was a nice thing we did together. Now, I mean, this is, I, I have, I'm imagining this beautiful farm and a little boy running around with lambs and, mm -hmm. you know, cows or, or whatever animals running around. And it around. was that. <laughs> and 
as he got older, I mean, the way, you know, especially as I, I said at the top of this conversation, the way Paige has told me his story and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess in, in telling this to the listeners as well, he is a very happy young man who is adaptable to the sense that he can be and to the rest of the world. You know, he looks like, and I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, I don't want to say normal because nothing's normal, but like, no, like for the a sake typical, of the, like, typical 38 year old guy. guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what, what have you done, you know, outside what the doctors recommended, although you can definitely go down that direction. What have mm-hmm. you done to make him thrive and your, your family thrive as well? Well, Brett was, well, initially it was all the things literally it was like a therapy room in the, in the house with different things to help him sensory wise. Um, you know, you do, you roll them in, um, different type feeling material. You, I did wheelbarrow walking, all this stuff that helped his nervous system to kind of get grounded. Um, so there was a lot of that role that I took on as a, like a therapist almost with him. Like initially he postured because he has cerebral palsy, his arm would be postured and I would just always flick it, flick the back of his arm with my hand and it would make him release his arm and hold it down. And he doesn't have, he has no posturing anymore. Um, he didn't, you know, after when he was a young boy, it kind of, we were able to get that corrected by constantly tapping his arm. So we, he didn't, he wasn't kept from doing anything. He skis, he wakeboards, he um, mows lawns. He does all just active things. So by he horseback, he used to horseback ride when he was little. Of course it was all done in a different way. And I was there and every person that's ever been with Brett, I've had, I've explained, you know, what is going on and what they need to look for, even though I'm still there, but that I wanted him to have as normal an experience as possible. So I think having him around other people, always interacting with people, he has a large family, a lot of cousins, there's 19 of them. He, he's always known what, wow, quote unquote, normal life is. So that was always his role model. So I think that that's part of, you know, what has helped him to be as independent. He's independent, but he's, but he's not because he has this seizure disorder. So he can't have complete independence. Um, but he has a wealth of knowledge. He ha- he's a very, he's an emotional person. He's a very caring person. He's um, also somebody who gets frustrated, you know, with his life. And he's very, can be very verbal about that, but he responds very well to people respecting him and talking to him like he is an adult, you know, and he's all, he was always like that, but there, it, all through his life, there was the advocating of, you know, when he gets off the bus and says, mom, you know, he, he was called a name and he said, what is that? And I said, well, it's not a nice name. And 
you know, or mom, they took my hat and they were throwing it all around the bus. They wouldn't let me have it on my head. They were, you know, teasing me, all that kind of stuff throughout his life. I always, I became the mama bear. I remember in when he was in fourth grade, I think it was, I had one of his school meetings and the teacher, because he was mainstreamed out a little bit, and they, I think they were picking teams for something. And I said to the teacher, how often is, how do you pick teams? And she said, well, I pick two people and then they, you know, pick people. And I said, well, how often is Brett picked? And she said, well, we all know what it's like to be picked last sometimes. And I said, we don't all know what it's like to be picked last all the time. You know, so it's like I always felt like I had to give a message somewhere to people. And I just have always had a fierceness to defending what is right and the right way to treat people. And I've done that throughout Brett's work career and everything else. I mean, it doesn't end with someone getting out of school that has the type of um, disabilities that Brett has. You have to help him navigate the work world and get the right supports and all that too. And unfortunately, sometimes it's a situation that people, especially with Brett, because he looks like he could do, that he's capable of doing more than he is, people would get frustrated with him so that, you know, the education needed to continue to this day, you know, with that type of thing. Now, what advice would you give to other mothers or fathers for that matter for kids with disabilities? And is there any wise words that you can, or to educate some of us that don't know what you're going through or he's going through? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, you know, for families of children with disabilities, there's always this almost like a stigma sometimes, you know, your child, your, when your child's in elementary school, you want them to be part of little league or whatever, all the, all the other things that people are in and it. You often feel like you're, a, you're set apart because your child is different. So there's other things to be involved in and not to be ashamed to be involved in say special Olympics or whatever. That's been a wonderful thing for Brett over the years. I just, I think that people need to make sure that they reach out to their doctors, their educators, make sure that you have to look for information and you have to look for what it is to try to meet the needs of your child. It isn't necessarily always offered to you. A lot of times in school situations, there's more that could be done for your child and sometimes you're the one who has to, you know, kind of investigate and, and find that. It's good to have relationships with other parents that have children with disabilities. You know, that's a big, a big thing. So I, and to not feel discouraged and to, I have learned so much from Brett because I've had my eyes opened to be able to receive that. I didn't, I haven't spent all of his life feeling sorry for him or feeling sorry for myself. I've just, you know, tried to get him involved in life so that he can live it just like everybody else, though it may be different. 
you've created a life for him and for you that he loves and you love is what it sounds like. Yes. And that's not to say that it's a perfect utopia and everything's of course <laughs> always wonderful. <laughs> and there there's there's frustrations and and but the thing is is to yes you can rely on yourself and re- rely on you know re- we can dig deep and find our strength but it is important to have a support system whatever that is for you whether it's family or you know a therapist or whatever there's nothing wrong with therapy when you're trying to raise your child that you know is not a typical child it's it's hard yeah um and but it's a there's a beauty in people I've I've often said you know sometimes I just wish I could see life the way that Brett does he doesn't see all the you know stuff that isn't necessary (laughs) if that makes any sense that kind of he just he's basically sees the the good well and that's beautiful and and maybe that's why as you said that he's ever since he was younger he's a big smile across his face not that he's not frustrated at times Mm -hmm. but that he looks at life i guess in a positive way well, he does, and he doesn't. He doesn't see a lot of the gray area. I guess I would want to say he's he's pretty black and white. So it's he gets frustrated with certain things, but there's other things that don't even touch him, don't even bother him because he doesn't even see that part of a situation. I don't know if that how to make that make total sense, but yeah, of course. And, <laughs> well, and you're his mom and you know him so well. And that's really beautiful to think, as you said earlier, like you've learned so much from him Mm -hmm. and he's given so much to you in a different way than, Mm -hmm. than you've given to him, but that it, you, you've made it work and that you love it that way. And you, in so many words, wouldn't want it differently. No, I wouldn't want it differently. And I, I have, You know, people, most people don't have their 38-year-old child still living at home with them. You know, people look to have people move into a group home or some other type of supportive living. And for Brett, I feel, and of course, if he wanted to leave and go try something like that it isn't something that he wouldn't be allowed to do type of thing it's just that he has a good quality of life he has more independence at home and the way that his life is now than he would if he lived in a group home because of the type of seizures and stuff that he has he'd be in a very restricted environment so that's not been someplace that we've you know, wanted to do at this point. Um, and he's, and he's happy and he has a job and, you know, he had, he has a quote unquote normal, normal life. And if he was living with staff supporting him rather than his family supporting him, I don't know that he would still have the same kind of attitude 
and positivity about life. And that's, and and that's beautiful that this is the, you know, again, this life that you created or helped create for your family. And Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I'm so grateful that you're sharing his story, your story, your family's story with us, because there's so many nuggets of wisdom that you have brought to the table. And I really, really love how you were talking earlier about kind of knowing, did you say knowing your gut or following your instincts? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And how as a mother or a guardian or somebody who loves a child, that that Mm -hmm. can be really powerful in it. And I want to say to you, I am so grateful, grateful, grateful that you're willing to share this because not, and, and it's okay if people don't want to share their story. It really is because we all have to do uh, really what's right for us. But this, when Paige had said you'd be willing to share with the listeners a story, I thought, what an inspiration that you've been as a mother and, you know, not just to her, but to him and, you know, hey, to me as a mother as well. So thank mm-hmm. you. I am hoping mm-hmm. that you will close out this episode like I do with most of my guests. In fact, all of my guests today, we play what's called the grateful game. Mm-hmm. It is something that I, my son and I created together when he was nine And I joke around, I kind of think it's because he didn't want to go to bed. So he was looking for excuses (laughs) to stay up. And so he humored me then and he still sometimes humors me me now. Where it's really about talking about what we're grateful for and why. And if you're new to me, the listeners out there, this is something that do I think it's going to cure my stage four cancer or change other people's lives drastically? Eh, I mean, maybe not. However, it has helped, and and even as Linda was saying earlier, having routines that bring positivity in your life can really be powerful, and that's what this gratitude practice, aka the Grateful Game, has done for me and my son. Throughout the day, we are looking for positive things that we almost report back to each other at night what we're grateful for and why. So to close out this episode, Linda, I hope you will play. I will play. I love it. And <laughs> I will I, I will then kick it off for us and I'll give us about they have 30, 45 seconds to talk about what we're grateful and why today. And it can be big things, it can be little things. And so I'm gonna start now. I will say, what am I grateful for? I am grateful for today. I was running out of seltzer and coconut water, mm-hmm. which In this day and age, there's so many fun drinks people can drink, but really, it's so wonderful for our hydration to stick with regular spring water. And so to get me there, I oftentimes will take some water, some seltzer, and a little bit of coconut water and mix it together. And to me, it's a little sweet treat that helps me with the hydration. So I ran out of the Harmless Harvest the other day, and I got some news new today. So I'm grateful for that. I am grateful for granddad, my husband's father, who loves golf and who took my son Kyle today to play golf. I love it because they're making memories together. I love it because it's helpful because it gave me an hour and a half of time to get some things done where I wasn't uh, taking Kyle around to some of his activities. And so those are two things I'm grateful for today. And I'm going to toss it to you. 
Okay, so today I am grateful that it's the first day of fall because it's my favorite season. I think today is the first day of fall or is it tomorrow? So it, but it, I, Yeah, today, was a, today, today is, is the right? first day of fall. <laughs> and so for those of you listening, you know, this is going to be a few weeks from now. Uh, but hey, every day it can be a new season. So be a new season. talk to us about what you love about fall. I love the feeling in the air. I love the pumpkin spice coffee or tea, all the candles, all the stuff that I mentioned before, yeah, all the smells right. and everything that just really bring me to a place of, of peace. Um, so, and just the colors of, of the leaves and oh, yeah, everything. Yeah. So that's all that. And I'm, you know, it's football time too in fall and I am going to Penn State this weekend to see Paige and to go to a football game. So that's another piece of fall that I love. I'm grateful for that. All right. You get one more, you win. Well, I'm, I'm also thankful for FaceTime today and every day that I'm able to see my daughter in Australia when we talk on the yeah. phone. That, so and and that's amazing. Okay, so you win, you won, but the truth is, it doesn't matter <laughs> if you win or lose. It's just if you play the game. So all you listeners out there, consider take a moment, take a minute in your day, whether it's when you wake up in the morning or setting you off to sleep at night, and just reflect on your day or what the day you want to come, and think of some good things that make you smile because even during life's really hard journey. And, you know, Linda's talk a bit about that. And, you know, from my story, I've hit it too. There are hard times in life and we've all, I'm sure you've been through it too. But being able to connect to something positive may help you put one foot in front of the other and find a little bit of joy during whatever journey you're going on in life. So Linda, thank you so much for playing the game and for being here today to share your story I am so grateful for that. And to all of you listeners out there, thank you, thank you, thank you. Have a wonderful day, everyone. And bye for now. And now my parting words. We play the grateful game at the end of each episode, and here is why. After my second diagnosis, I started to research who was thriving with cancer and what they were doing to be well. I learned that wellness is about consistent self-care, creating everyday practices that help improve our body and mind toward a state of good health. And for me, focusing on gratitude brings tremendous positive energy and happiness into my life. So my recipe, my thought for happiness includes focusing on gratitude. And so I just wanted to say I am incredibly grateful for you, the listeners, Thank you for your encouragement, your support, and interest in these powerful stories showcased on this podcast. I hope the words of all the guests have brought a smile to your face and perhaps a little bit of new knowledge, tools, and resources to help reduce stress, improve health, and find a little bit of joy during whatever journey you're going through in life. Thanks again for joining us today. I am sending you lots of happiness and great health. Bye for now.